question this morning. I think I already know the answer to this, but this is a fairly universal kind of experience, I think. But have you ever had a bully in your life? Everybody laughs and heads are nodding all over just for the you know purposes of the recording. Everybody, everybody, I think can identify with the experience of having a bully in their life. I certainly can. You know, I've had several. Um, in grade school, there was this one girl. It was in um, fifth grade um, gym class, and among other creative ways she had of torturing me every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for that forty-five minute period, she always made sure every single time to make sure to hit me in the face, in particular, with a dodgeball. That's horrible. Horrible little girl. Uh, Maybe maybe it was in high school you had a bully. When I was in high school, um, when I was 14, we moved to Missouri, to rural Missouri, from the south suburbs of Chicago. And so I was somewhat of a novelty when I got there in the middle of the school year. And there was a boy that asked me out, and I turned him down, was not interested. And so he launched this rumor campaign about me and the kind of person I had been before we moved to Missouri that had like this whole group of people just treating me and in totally inappropriate ways, speaking to me inappropriately. And school was like hell until that died down and like the principal got a hold on things. It was awful. It was awful. Maybe you've experienced bullying as an adult. I mean, we don't talk about that a lot. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't often acknowledge that that's still a thing, but You know, predatory kids sometimes grow up to be kind of predatory adults. Just before I came on staff at the church about five years ago, the job that I had, um, I had to participate in a formal complaint process because one of my coworkers was bullying another one of them. And it it was awful, like vicious, vile stuff. I'm not talking about like, oh, I don't like you or, you know, your shirt is ugly. I mean, it was, it was vile cruelty. It was horrible. People are so awful to each other. So awful. So today, as we continue our sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, we're we're reading through Nehemiah together, unpacking it chapter upon chapter over the summer here. Um, We're going to talk about the opposition that Nehemiah faced from the bullies that he had in his world. And hopefully as we consider his response to those bullies that he experienced, we'll be able to learn something about the way that you and I can respond to these situations as they come up in our own life. So a brief summary just to make sure that we're all on the same page about what's happened in the story up until this point. Uh, The walls of the city of Jerusalem had been in ruin for about 150 years. That was after there was a a military conquest and, and the nation of Israel was defeated and and carried off into captivity and slavery, and the walls were just in rubble for about 150 years. And Nehemiah was a person who served as a trusted um, advisor, and he was a servant of the king of that foreign government. And it was through that relationship that he was actually assigned the task of going to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And through that relationship that he was given the resources that he needed to do so. The walls of the city, they were important, not just for protection, for military purposes in that ancient culture. But they also served as a boundary that defined like that national identity. Like we're a people and this is, these are our boundaries as a people, our identity as a people. 
And so when he got to Jerusalem, Nehemiah succeeded in rallying, you know, the people that were there in the city and the people that he brought with them. He, he banded them all together and they, they got, got behind this project of rebuilding the walls. And he coordinated this huge, I mean, massive engineering project all the while kind of looking over his shoulder because there was threats from the outside, from the enemies that wanted to um, distract from that project. And as we examine chapter 6 this week, we're going to talk about three separate kind of confrontations that Nehemiah had with that opposition against what was happening in Jerusalem. And we're going to take them each in turn and we'll pull out some hopefully helpful principles from each scenario. As the chapter opens, we're in Nehemiah chapter 6. Feel free to pull out your tablets and your phones and get on BibleGateway.com or version or whatever it is you use. We've also got some antiquated paper Bibles in the windowsill if you prefer. I'm an old soul, so I dig the paper. But Nehemiah chapter 6 as the chapter opens, so the, the, the work is almost complete. They've been working. We've been talking about what was going on for several weeks now. It's almost finished. There's just a couple of finishing touches. It says, you know, the doors and the gates were the last things that had to go in. Um, and we already met some of these bullies back in chapter 4. If you happen to be here a couple of weeks ago, we met these guys already. But the impending completion of the project is kind of up to the ante for them. And so they, they escalated. They escalated when it got just, just this close to the end. They made a stronger, more direct attempt at derailing the project. So let's take a look. And Nehemiah chapter 6 starts out like this. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time, I had not set the doors and the gates. They sent me this message. Sanballat and Geshem sent this message to Nehemiah. Come, let us meet together in one of the village, villages on the plain of Oh No. I don't know if that's really how you say it, but I just think that's kind of cute. Like, oh no, I'm not going down there. Oh no, I don't want to meet you at Oh No. It was about 30 miles away from the city, and so it represented a pretty significant journey. And, and even if they had had good intentions, it would have really thrown off the timeline of what was happening. So they invited him to come and meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Oh No. But they were scheming to harm me. Nehemiah knew what was up. They're scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. This is what Nehemiah said back. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and I go down to you? They invited him to this meeting, but he knew they were dangerous. And so he answers back. This is, you guys, my favorite line in this whole book. This is my favorite line. The message version says it like this. I love this. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. I can't come down. I love that. I love that. When I read scripture, I like to just get my whole imagination engaged in the story. And so when I picture this, when I picture Nehemiah in this moment, he's like this bold, assertive, like he is just not having, he, no, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I know what these guys are up to, and no, no. I am doing a good work, and I will not come down. I will not come down. What if we responded this way 
to the people in our own lives that try to catch us off guard, that try to intimidate us and drag us down into distraction? What if this was our response? What if we said this, I am doing a good work and I will not come down. I will not come down to your level. No, I will not. Nehemiah was winning at life right then. He was winning. He had nearly completed his project and here comes all this nonsense. Like seriously, how many times does that happen to us? How many times is that a dynamic that's in our own lives? We are moving along. We are on the path that God has called us down toward whatever good end that he has prepared for us. And someone, something wants to sabotage, wants to interfere with God's work in our life. How many times does this happen? Maybe it's a relationship that you know is not good for you. Could be a habit that you have left behind and it still, it still calls. I have one of those. A lie that you have believed about yourself in the past and here it comes whispering in your ear again, trying to pull you away from what you know is the truth, how God feels about you, how he sees you, what you are capable of as his child. I am doing a good work and I will not come down. I'm not going to allow myself to fall for that trap. My healing, my recovery, my sanity, those things are all gifts from God. He has graciously given me the wisdom to recognize the danger. And I will resist that distraction. I am doing a good work and I will not come down. And Nehemiah lets Sanballat know, not today. I'm not having it. I'm not having it. But Sanballat was not one to give up easily. So after four times of sending this invitation, four different times he invited him, this disingenuous invitation, Sanballat escalates again. In verse 5 we read, Then the fifth time... Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. Unsealed letter. The letter basically, you know, to summarize, accuses Nehemiah of treason, says that Nehemiah intends to rebel against the king, the one that he was the servant of, and declare himself king of Judah. That this whole wall-building project has just been a scheme to position himself to to take over. And that letter finishes with this line in verse 7. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. Oh, that slimy snake. But we've got to talk about one little word here in this passage that we could miss. One, one word that we might not understand is, is actually pretty significant. And that's the word unsealed. Unsealed. You may or may not know that the standard operating procedure of the day was to seal a letter. And important people had their, their stamp that they'd, you know, imprint into the wax or whatever it was that they used. And that, that not only let people know, like, yes, this letter is from this person, but it also served to maintain the privacy 
of what was in the letter, the contents of the letter. And so when Sanballat sends this unsealed letter, that is an intentional, that's an intentional move on his part to discredit Nehemiah and to make sure that this rumor gets plenty of traction because you can picture, you know, it's not like you sent stuff, you know, overnight with FedEx or whatever, like, but by the time it gets from Sanballat to Nehemiah, how many hands has that letter been in? And you know, you know, everybody who had it in their hand went, oh, there's no seal on this. I wonder what it says. And they unscrolled it and they looked. Oh, oh my goodness. Look what Nehemiah's up to. Anyone could read it. And do you know what they did immediately after they read it? I know, I know exactly what they did. They gossiped about it. Gossiped. Because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you if you had this, you know, fascinating information about the important people of the day? Gossip. This is one of our favorite sins to participate in. And it's one of our least favorite sins to be the victim of. Gossip causes so much destruction. So much destruction. But it is so socially and culturally acceptable that we frequently minimize the seriousness of this sin. And I'm using that word very intentionally. You know, we have a gentle approach around here a lot, but I'm going to use the word sin. This sin is mentioned frequently throughout the Old Testament and the New. And so there's lots and lots of passages I could have pulled from, but I'm just going to read a little bit out of Proverbs chapter 11, what that has to say about gossip. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 9 says, With their mouths the godless destroy, destroy their neighbors. But through knowledge the righteous escape. And a little bit further down in verse 12, whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. In verse 13, a gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. We learned that when we were five, didn't we? That to keep a secret for your friend was a, was a big deal, it was an important deal. Sanballat was slandering Nehemiah. He was slandering him, accusing him of betraying the king. And this king was someone that was Nehemiah's friend, someone he was very close to. This is the person that Nehemiah had faithfully served for so many years, protecting this guy, advising this guy. So the king must also have had this strong trust and affection for Nehemiah, for Nehemiah to be in the position that he was in. And to give him the responsibility and the resources that he needed for rebuilding this wall to trust him with this project. I mean, this is is a tight, tight relationship. It's an important relationship. What would the consequences have been if the king had believed this rumor about Nehemiah? What destruction would have been wrought in the lives of all of the people that were connected to this situation? I once heard a brilliant man, who happens to be my husband, say in a message 
that gossip is like murder in the spiritual realm. Oh, that, oh, mm, that sounds, it sounds a little bit harsh, but I think it's right. I think it's right. So followers of Jesus, if this is something that you find yourself participating in, either as the one who spreads the gossip or the one who receives it and listens, I have to ask you with all of the love in my heart for you, and I'm talking to myself always, 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 you just have to stop. We just have to stop. Gossip destroys people, destroys relationships, destroys lives, destroys people. It is like murder in the spiritual realm. We have to learn to bite our tongue when we feel that impulse to share information. Whether it's truth or it's speculation, it's hard to tell which one does the most damage, but we have to bite our tongue when we feel that impulse to say something that's not honoring to other people. Something that exposes someone or dishonors them. And we have to learn, this is so hard. Like, you guys, I'm the most reserved. Like, I don't, I don't ever want people to be upset with me. But I've had to learn how to do this. We have to learn to do this super uncomfortable thing. When somebody comes at us with, guess what I heard about so-and-so? Guess what I heard? We have to learn to look that person in the eye and say, I'm not willing to have that conversation with you. I don't want that information. Man, that's going to be uncomfortable. Because they might get mad. They might get mad because they might be embarrassed that you called them out on what they're doing. But our hands will be clean if that's the way that we'll respond. Gossip is murder in the spiritual realm. And Proverbs says, the one who has understanding holds their tongue. Sanballat wasn't righteous. He wasn't righteous or understanding. And he had every intention of bringing Nehemiah to ruin with his smear campaign. But again, Nehemiah is no pushover. And his response is gold. It's gold. And it's how you and I can respond if we find ourselves the victim of gossip. Chapter 6, verse 8 says, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You are just making that up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. So look what Nehemiah did. Look at what his response was. He declared the truth. He identified the objective of the enemy. And he prayed that instead God would achieve a kingdom objective in the situation. That's a whole other sermon right there for like another time. Like I got to take some notes about that. But he said, that's not true. You're trying to weaken our hands. God, will you strengthen our hands? We can do that too. You and I can do that. Declare the truth. Figure out just exactly what it is the enemy is after, the enemy of our souls. Because how many of you know that it's, it's, not, it's not usually people, you know, that are the root of all of this kind of stuff in our life. It's, it's Satan manipulates 
the relationships that we have to throw us off track. Satan's the ultimate enemy of our soul. Identify what he's after and ask God to give you provision in that particular area. And Nehemiah has one final encounter in chapter 6, and this one is with a Levite named Shemaiah. So Nehemiah goes to visit Shemaiah at his house. It says he was shut in at his house. And this is what the guy says to Nehemiah in verse 10. Let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Let's go run into the temple and hide and shut the doors. This one is tough. This is the toughest one, you guys. Because this is someone inside the city. Inside the walls. This is one of the home team. You hear what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? These are, to me, these are the worst kinds of betrayals. They're the ones that come from the people that are closest to us. Closest to us that we're supposed to be able to trust. Those, those are the ones that hurt the worst. Now, we might miss some of the nuance here in this interaction if we don't, if we don't know that it was actually a violation of Jewish law for a layman to enter the temple, that part. That was not okay for Nehemiah to be there. And as a Levite, a temple worker, Shemaiah, he, I mean, he knew that. Heck, everybody, everybody knew that. So if Nehemiah had given in, if he had taken that advice, it would have made him, I mean, at the least, look really, really bad. So this is the sneakiest, slimiest thing in the whole chapter. This is a person that's charged with sacred duties and they are choosing corruption and lies and they're trying to tempt someone towards sin instead of helping them figure out how to avoid it. Pretending to be motivated by a desire to protect Nehemiah. But not even this deceitful display of concern could snare Nehemiah. So he responds again with that wisdom that comes from his relationship of dependence upon God. He draws from that heavenly wisdom and he responds this way in verse 11. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the the temple to save his life? I will not go. I'm not doing it. I realized I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Man, Nehemiah was on it with this one. He was on it. It usually takes me way longer, way longer than that to figure out when someone who's close to me that I think I can trust really doesn't actually have my best interest in mind. I've been blindsided a few times. 
sucker punched two by four up the back of the head. Because I want to believe the best about people. I always do. I want to. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And so sometimes I overlook some red flags. I'm working on that. Working on that. But here's another thing. This is really hard when we're dealing with bullies and manipulators inside the church. Because somehow, somehow, we've gotten some things twisted, I think, sometimes. We think that being a Christian means we always have to be nice. Always have to be nice. But guess what? That's wrong. That's not true. It's not true. We're commanded to be kind. Okay? Kind. Jesus was always kind. But he wasn't always nice. Flipping tables over. Chasing people with whips. He called people whitewashed tombs. You're just pretty painted graves. And brood of vipers. Those things are not nice. That's not nice. So, when we think that we have to go along with any kind of manipulative nonsense that someone tries to impose on us just because we're Christians, I think we must be missing something. I think we're missing something there. Listen, just because we are in a church does not mean that we have to stand there and smile while someone is abusive. If anything, the church should hold itself to a higher standard when it comes to respect and safety in relationships. Absolutely to a higher standard. So it's completely in bounds. Completely in bounds to say to someone, no matter where you're at, no matter where you know them from, in this building, no, that's not okay. I am not okay with that. That's not okay. Now, most people, listen, there, there's, a, there's a caveat here because most people have good intentions. Most people do not set out in a malicious way to be unhealthy in relationships. And so it's really good for us to, to guard against like this suspicious, hyper-vigilant kind of everyone in the world is a toxic person kind of mentality because that's not healthy for us either. So we can, we can go off into into crazy town over here. But just like me, Nehemiah, we would do well to speak truth in the face of manipulation. To resist instead of going along with anything, doesn't matter, anything that would throw us off the path, that would pressure us to go in any direction that we know is not the leading of the Holy Spirit for us. That is not what is good and true and right. That is not the path that God has called us down. We would do well to resist that and not give in to the pressure just for the sake of being nice. And So be kind always. Like it's not a license to just go out and be a jerk to everybody. 
Be kind always, but you don't always have to be nice. You don't. And let's all together thank God for this little verse, this tiny little verse that's tucked into Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It's a beautiful thing, and it will set you free if you get a hold of it. Romans 12, 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible implies that sometimes it isn't. As far as it depends on you implies that sometimes the other party will not keep up their end of the deal. And that's, that's okay. That's okay. Because like Nehemiah, we can depend on God to give us the wisdom that we need to know exactly how to respond when we're challenged by any kind of bully in our life. Whether the attack is direct or it's indirect, whether it's by a person that is far off, far removed from our inner circle, or it's someone that is very close to us. God is not surprised and he is not confused. So he can give us the grace and the strength that we need to carry on. To carry on unwavering in our resolve to do as the book of Hebrews suggests in chapter 12, to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Some versions say that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And he is well able to give us the wisdom and the courage and the strength that we need to face these situations. The final verse of this section of Nehemiah 6 says this, verse 15 So the wall was completed. On the 25th of Elul, in 52 days, the wall was completed. And like the wall was completed, so are you and I made complete as we persevere through opposition to the work of God in our hearts and our lives. We are doing a good work. And we cannot come down. We will not be distracted. Let me pray.